I was 25 at the time when we were talking about this originally. Danielle was 24. <laughs> and you, uh, I remember just like literally being like, okay, I'm now a cliche. I'm having a quarter life crisis. But I felt like time was running out. And I had this really like gut instinct of like, this is not the career I'm supposed to be in. It's an out of body experience. Um, but I really just like felt it. Um, and so I think there was, there was no talking to us truly. Like we were going to sink or swim, but like there was no talking to us. It felt like we have no money, which we really didn't. And we just quit our jobs and we're going to start something. And I think that fear is actually what made us put in the 20 plus hour days. Mm -hmm. uh, was that we didn't have a plan B. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all of the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Hey, listeners, welcome to the latest edition of No Limits. This is Rebecca, and this is a special episode. It's a crossover with the Skimmed from the Couch team, Carly Zakin and Danielle Weisberg. The two women quit their jobs as news producers and launched a newsletter in 2012. It was called The Daily Skim, and it became the fastest-growing newsletter on the market. Since then, they've built a media empire, which now includes their subscription app and video production Skim Studios. Every day, they reach more than 7 million people. Danielle and Carly had us over to the Skim headquarters in New York for the interview, and they take us back to the beginning, when they were two girls in their mid-20s trying to build the Skim from their couch. I really enjoyed this conversation, and it's an important one about finding that right co-founder, that partner to build something with. Don't forget, after this interview, you can head on over to Skimmed from the Couch, where Danielle and Carly turn the tables and interview me. Okay, here are the Skim founders, Danielle Weisberg and Carly Zakin. Carly Zakin and Danielle Weisberg, welcome to No Limits. Thank you so much for having us. We're excited. This is weird to be on the other side of this, I have to say. Well, I'm really thrilled to be here at The Skim, and we just did The Skimmed from the Couch podcast, which you guys ask great questions. You guys are doing a great job with the podcast, so thank you for having me. Thank you for having us and coming on our show. Yeah, um, we're excited. Yeah, me too. Well, there's a lot to get to, so I want to kind of go back to when you initially got started, and, and you two met in Rome on... We did. We, um, <laughs> yes. we like to, um, you know, startups are very competitive. And one thing that we win hands down every time is the origin story. Um, so we met in college in Rome. We randomly were there on the same study abroad trip. We went to different schools, grew up in different cities and connected there. Um, and then we went our separate ways uh, after eating a lot of pasta. and <laughs> I was going to say more pasta or gelato. Pasta, for sure. Um, and uh, we reconnected when we were both working full-time for NBC News after college. Um, and we became friends as two people starting off in the industry and bounced around the same cities from D.C. and New York and wound up roommates, 25 years old, um, in a very small apartment in New York City working at NBC and trying to figure out how we could stay in this career that we loved um, when things were not good in the media industry after the recession. Um, we started off being really cheap labor. 
we learned a lot. Mm. And then when we weren't so cheap anymore um, and we're starting to think about how do we really build a long-term career for ourselves, um, although we wanted it to be there, there just wasn't a clear path anymore. Um, So in a lot of ways, we felt like the idea to start our own company was a safer decision. Did you like your time at NBC or was it frustrating? I loved my time there. And I think we both felt that we um, we had amazing mentors who we're both still in touch with all the time from like intern through full-time jobs um, and amazing coworkers. I personally, like I loved corporate America. Like there's a lot of people you meet who are like, I can't wait to leave. You're or like having a 401k. I didn't have that. I also did not have health insurance. Uh, I okay. was technically <laughs> under their like freelance um, umbrella, which is the way that you can, or I think they changed it, but it was a way that to make it cheaper labor, really. Um, so I did not like <laughs> not having those things, but I liked being a part of something bigger. I liked um, getting dressed up for work. I liked seeing the talent, like you. <laughs> like I liked, um, I, I just, I loved uh, being where all the magic happened. And I think the only time that I ever felt frustrated was really towards the end of my time, which was, you know, it's easy to to kind of look back and kind of like, you know, diagnose yourself with like, oh, I was feeling this, so this happened. But I think what was happening when I look back is that something like within me had other interests and it was it was business it was clearly entrepreneurialism and entrepreneurship but i was trying to navigate my way and there was no way to do that unless it was like purely editorial and so i think um i think a lot has changed since we've left and obviously the industries have dramatically changed but um that was really what was frustrating to me you're living together and working together so you're living in this tiny little apartment was that difficult at all? Because, I, I mean, I love all of the roommates that I've had over the years. <laughs> but I think back, you know, not it didn't always work out. <laughs> so we don't endorse starting a company <laughs> with your friend or with your roommate. Um, we worked on different shows. So we had drastically different hours. So we actually didn't see each other that much. Carly had more normal hours and I had, like, late primetime hours. And so it was kind of this weird check for each other when Carly um, would be leaving for work, I would be just getting up and it was kind of like, oh, you're doing that again. And then when I would get home, (laughs) Carly would be going to bed and it was like, oh, how was your day? And it was like, okay. We were this check each day to keep pushing each other about this idea that we had. So who first had the idea? Who first said, let's get out of here and start our own company? I truly couldn't tell you, honestly. I think, like, honestly, I think part of, like, what our partnership is great is that we constantly say we. But, like, from, like, honest to God, I actually don't know. I remember a lot of stoop conversations. But even before that, I remember when I lived in D.C. still, you're in New York. We used to text a lot about, like, this idea, the idea. And we had, like, a folder. There was no real idea. Project (laughs) TBD or whatever it was. But I think, um, like, my point with that is that there was no magic moment. It Mm. wasn't. People are always like, what was the aha moment? And I'm like, there wasn't one. It's not easy to quit your job. It's not easy to leave an industry that you loved or leave – it's not like we were unhappy. So Mm. it was harder in a lot of ways to um, be leaving these jobs that we had not only gotten our foot in the door but moved up really quickly. Um, So it was just kind of time that I think ultimately led to us quitting and trying this. Well, and so you were 26 
when you created the skim. I'm sorry, she couldn't hear you. Danielle is 25. I was 26. okay. Okay, <laughs> but 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 to some extent, I think about that. You know, it, it's when you start a company at at that stage, and this is something we talked about on your podcast. What you are giving up? Yes, you had this incredible job, and I'm sure family and friends said to you, "Wait, wait, wait! Mm-hmm. Like, why would you leave yes. that job to do this they other thought we thing?" Were crazy. Mm-hmm. They think you're crazy, right? But at the same time, you recognize I'm still young. I can, like, worst case scenario, this thing goes bust, but at least I tested the waters and I could figure something else out. It's really funny because when I meet with, um, you know, people in their early mid 20s and you you see this hunger about them, and sometimes, like, if you want to give, you know, critical feedback as a manager, sometimes you want to be like, slow down, like, slow down. And when I think about that, I, I try, I hope I don't say that too much because I, that was the most annoying thing for us to hear. Yep. Like I remember, and I mean, I, I laugh at myself. Like we were, I was twenty five at the time when we were talking about this originally. Danielle was twenty four, and <laughs> thank you. Uh, I remember just like literally being like, "Okay, I'm now a cliche. I'm having a quarter life crisis." But I felt like time was running out. I just felt this like like ticking clock, and I was like, I'm not doing the job I'm supposed to be doing. And I had this really like gut instinct of like, this is not the career I'm supposed to be in. And that's why like a lot of times, like we've said, it's an out-of-body experience. Um, But I really just like felt it. Um, And so I think there was, there was no talking to us truly. Like we were going to sink or swim, but like there was no talking to us. So you talk about the file that you had, the TBD file and <laughs> the text messages. I still have it messages. on my computer. Really? I, that, like, my skim folder on my computer still says Project TBD. That's awesome. How close to what's in that folder is the skim today? I don't actually know if we ever put anything in the folder. It was just like, <laughs> no, I, we need to We do actually, I, did we? yeah, I'm the, um, I would say people always ask, like, how do you divide and conquer? Danielle clearly never I'm the sentimentalist. The <laughs> so, You're also the archivist. Yeah, so yeah. I, I actually have organized the folder for us over years to make sure that we have a nice Thank scrapbook. Thank you. I appreciate that. And what I can tell you is it's actually really similar. Um, Our idea, like our vision has gotten so much bigger. I mean, I remember like the first deck that we ever put together, like we've surpassed so much of it and we think so much bigger. But the mission around what we do, the focus on the audience and how we really describe our value, like we could have written it today. Wow. And you reach now 7 million plus subscribers. That's incredible. So you, back at this point, had saved collectively between the two of you $4,000. Yeah. And, and <laughs> I think that when you asked us earlier about um, being young and kind of like, if this doesn't work out, then we'll find something else. I don't think that was my attitude. I mean, we were mm. both terrified. Yeah. But I think in retrospect, right. that makes total sense to me, right? Like, yeah, I would have found something else. At the time – It didn't feel that way at all. It felt like we have no money, which we really didn't. And we just quit our jobs and we're going to start something. And I think that fear is actually what made us put in the 20 plus hour days Mm -hmm. um, was that we didn't have a plan B. And I think that's actually something I'm torn on now when I talk to – young entrepreneurs who are like, oh, I'm just going to you know, start something. And I'm like – well, but how how are you going to pay your bills or like how are you going to pay rent? And it it always kind of kills me a little bit that that's my reaction now. Mm-hmm. But I do credit 
that as being a big reason why we were so hungry for those first two years because there was no fallback. It was like we will will this to be a success. And I think that's something that we tend to recognize in other entrepreneurs. Like one of our advisors we talk about all the time that he will will his company into being a success. And there's no doubt in my mind that even if everything in the business failed, he would just magically push that company into a success. And I think that that's how we got it to even start. Mm-hmm. I think you raise a lot of really interesting and important points there. One uh, about this advisor that you bring up. So obviously, advisors are really, really important and useful. Finding the right advisors yeah. is really important and useful. Um, I'm assuming some of that comes from when you're raising funds and then the people who ultimately put money with you become your advisors? Not necessarily, actually. Really? Okay. So let's hear about how you've developed those people. So I think that um, there's so much that we didn't know and that was like we've messed up and, you know, kind of all these sort of stories that we can kind of half laugh about now. But uh, I think what we were really good at because, and I'm sure you can like appreciate from our journalism background, is we're really good at networking. Like we literally, you know, you're used to like finding interview subjects and we're like, this leads to that, which leads to that person. And that kind of puzzle was actually like very thrilling for us. So we, before we really did anything, we started creating a network. Um, I mean, I remember like yesterday, like we made a list of the companies that we admired, um, that we felt were in a, there was something similar about them, like to us. And like, they ranged from at the time, Daily Candy to Oprah. <laughs> like we were just like, you know, we really shot big. Uh, and we then made a list of who invested in those companies. Um, and then we made a list of who's involved in those companies. And we, I mean, we really built our network like from day one. Um, we did not know a lot of people to help advance the company. And we did a ton of cold outreach and we just figured out how to get in front of people. Um, and I remember, honestly, one of the best moments where I like truly just be, remember being like, I'm so proud of us was it was like two, three years in and we looked at that list and we had met everyone on the list including Oprah. And that was just, I was like, wow, we like really crossed it all off. Like, I mean, the list has gotten bigger now of ambition. But uh, it was, um, I think that that helped us build um, a network of supporters and mentors that we could really go to for the most basic questions. And when you were cold reaching out to these people, what was the pitch? What did you say to them that got you in the door? Well, as our archivist, I remember. Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We used to say... I remember it was we quit our jobs to start a company and would you mind We used to it like out? our subject line yeah. would be like former MBCers start new business. Yeah. And we used to say like do you have like t- you know 10 minutes to me in the next 2 weeks would love to tell you what we're doing um and then maybe sometimes like a line why we thought they would be interested. And how many times did you go back to people in order to get in front of them? So actually I was thinking about – this is not going to be the worst piece of advice I have, but thinking about that, when I was at NBC – I was at MSNBC and I was trying to get a job there finally. And um, I was really – both of us are very persistent about following up. And this guy told me that there's a fine line (laughs) between following up and pushing it. And that basically I had crossed it. So, <laughs> but I don't think that I actually learned from that. Um, mm-hmm. I think we still followed up a ton. What we did learn was 
to find advocates for that intro. Yes. So like we would still try to follow up I think three to four times if we don't hear back I mean we still do that now like we still have people who haven't responded that are dream people and I probably email them like once every three months yeah I boomerang like once a month like who are the people that just like hey me again stock (laughs) Mm -hmm. um yeah and then we would there so one of our first investors we actually spent a year trying to reach and that was through all different connections and he took a phone call with us and then was like, okay, you know, next, I'm not interested. Every time someone would connect with us, it was like, he's not interested. He's not interested. And I think it was from the third or fourth connection, he finally took a meeting um, and he wrote us a check on the spot. And I think that was the biggest lesson that we had, which is sometimes about showing that you won't give up. Other times it's about getting an endorsement um, and maybe you need more than one or two or three when you're Mm -hmm. just starting out. I think that's a great point because actually one of the things I think I did early in my career that – I mean I'm not sitting back and regretting it, but I think I mistook early on not wanting to bother people and then not getting in front of them as a result. And now looking backwards – People who want to get in front of me, unfortunately, they have to be tenacious and they have to get, you know, I'll tell people if you don't get me on my phone the first time, don't even leave a message. Just try me back in two days because you're more likely to just grab me in that way than to get me. It doesn't even necessarily have to do with interest. It just has to do with chaos. And in many cases, if you want to reach someone who's really busy and on your list of people to reach, you just have to be aggressive about yeah. continuously calling them totally um i i think that i actually the thing that kind of angers not angers me that's the wrong word the thing that i get annoyed about is when i don't see that like tenacity or persistence in people and so i actually make a rule like i don't usually respond to the first email when someone asks for advice um i usually wait to see if they're going to follow up which part of that is to like try to be mindful of my time um, so that I'm actually meeting with people that I think have that grit um, and it's like a good filter. So I, mm-hmm. I totally agree with that. So you kick off the company when one of you is 26, the other one is 25. <laughs> At what point was there an, oh my God, what are we doing moment? Hear more from the Skims, Danielle and Carly after a quick word from our sponsor. When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Get started today at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. So you kick off the company when one of you is 26, the other one is 25. <laughs> at what point was there an, oh my God, what are we doing moment? In a good way or a bad way? Either. Um, the next morning, <laughs> I, what was so what was the moment of kickoff? Was it the first skim email that went out? Yes. And how many people did it go out to? Archivist. Um, the first email. So we sent a blast email to our whole like network. We basically gathered all these email addresses. So we had like 5,500 people we emailed to please sign up. I believe the first email went out to like 400 people. And then we had a few articles come out about us that day. So I believe, if I remember correctly, we ended the day at about 800. 
And I remember with those first articles, um, we caused quite a debate on Slate. I think it must have been a slow news day. Um, (laughs) And it was the first time we'd ever been on the other side. And that was hard. And I don't think either one of us anticipated that that was going to be hard. Um, And that was the first moment where I was like, oh, wow, we started a company and we kind of were just like, oh, we're going to write. But that was the first time when I realized we're a business owner and we put our names on this. And Well, because I just remember we were going to launch anonymously. Yeah. And literally until the 11th hour, like we were launching anonymously. And we we decided we don't we don't still don't have our names on the site, but we decided like for press, like we'll say who we are and you know talk about our story. I'm very glad we did that. But I think as soon as we made the decision to not be anonymous, um, I mean we're both really like introverted people. We're both very private, and we were like, oh, like what did we just do? And Slate was basically critiquing the content and the two of you. There was and- actually a debate. Why you should skim was one article. And the next article was why you shouldn't skim, I think. <laughs> so we were like, OK, they're talking about us. And then it made a little bit of noise. Yeah, But that's the thing. Probably on the one hand, being new to it, it was really hard. But on the other hand, it probably drove people to check you out. Yeah, I think it was also a great lesson to have on your first day of business, which is you can't handle this. Get out of the game. Um, and so I think that was the first time where um, one of the things that I had to definitely overcome in my career early on was I would have a really, really tough skin in the newsroom, right? Because when you're in the thick of it, people yell. And so you kind of get used to being yelled at. Um, all the time, and that all the time, all the time, right? <laughs> you it's used just to being yelled at, dot, like dot, in dot. A, all, all the, the time. control room, you do, yeah, all the time, and it's not pointed. It's just how it's the language, right? But then when I would have reviews and it was out of that environment, I never knew how to take that feedback. So seeing it printed and having our names associated with it, I'm like, well, if they had called and yelled at me, I'd be like, okay. But um, it was just kind of learning that I needed to toughen up in a different way. Um, And that was the very beginning of that. And now I look back and I'm like, thank God we had that lesson day one. I actually remember one of – because we had – there was a few articles that came out about us. And one of the reporters said, is there anything else that you want to add? Which is like a very standard thing in any interview. And so we kind of just started talking. And as soon as we did that, we were like, that was wrong. You're never supposed to really answer that. And so like that's where people like mess up and like say something they regret. And we didn't even say anything bad. But I remember we called like – we called um, someone, like a friend who's – best friend worked in PR and we were like oh my god we totally ruined the interview oh my god what do we do what do we do and we, I, I just felt like sick to my stomach and she was like it's fine you didn't say anything bad and now you will know next time like don't you never have anything else to add and I would just remember being like wow we really don't know anything anymore <laughs> <laughs> and you're learning I mean yeah. every day you're learning right your voice and the voice of the skim newsletter has been so much a part of its success so much of a part of its identity you're no longer 26 and 25 years old. So has that, would you say that's evolved? Is that something that's really important to you, to the identity of the brand? So the voice is not my voice. It's not Carly's voice. It's a voice and identity that we created together. And the identity is always evolving. Um, And as this female millennial generation grows up, that's something that we want to consistently look at and reevaluate. Um, So we're looking to grow with this generation as they move through different life stages. 
So do you see yourselves then remaining a, a source of content and a touch point for women, you know, in college, just out of college? Or do you kind of see that audience growing with you as you grow in your lives? I don't think it's mutually exclusive. So we have products that I think are great for people when they graduate college, like the newsletter, I think is the perfect way to opt in. I think our social channels offer that. When we think about creating products and really diving into more of a membership-driven philosophy, which is where the company is going, we certainly think about following this audience as we grow and encounter different challenges. Um at our core, what we do is we connect the dots for people. We make it easier to live smarter. Um, and in the beginning, that was how do you keep up with what's going on in the world? And we think about it as how do you continue to do that over your life as decisions get more complicated and you never get more time? How do you think about your role and responsibility? This is something that comes up a lot in my world as well around fake news and accuracy and is that something that is a conversation that's happening here where the responsibility is really clear in this moment? I think that um, obviously any any company that's in the news space, like I can't think of one that wouldn't have had a conversation about, you know, the trends and the conversation topics that we've all seen in the zeitgeist over the last few years. For us, you know, from day one, we made a decision, having come from a background in breaking news and coming from a live control room, that we we had no interest in being in breaking news. We didn't ever need it to be first. We needed to be right. And I think if you had asked us um, really until, you know, I would say until the, the, the last election, um, what what we thought about what we did, we would say it's a privilege. We would say, you know, it, we we really feel like we're filling a void. I think that what we saw in 2016 and it carried over to the midterms this year is that we have an incredible ability to activate this audience and truly reach a politically diverse audience. And there are really not a lot of places that can say that. So in 2016, we got over 100,000 people registered to vote. And in 2018 for the midterms, we got over 200,000 people to actually show up and vote. We know that what we do is a responsibility. And um, I think we take that incredibly seriously, which is we've always from day one instilled really rigorous fact checking and, and really have always put journalistic integrity first. When you look back, what do you wish you knew when you started the company? You know, I love this question because I think the answer is that um, it was the biggest blessing that we didn't know how hard it would be. So everything that has come up is kind of like a surprise and not necessarily a delight, but it's a learning experience. Um, I think that if we had known how hard it would be, I think we would have been potentially too scared to try. So I think it was great that we didn't have any previous baggage. We couldn't say, oh, this time, you know, this is what – last time, this is what went wrong. It was kind of this naivete and this fresh thinking at a time when so many of the media companies that we started off with had completely different perspectives. Um, I feel like we may not have stayed true to our vision if we had done it before, because we probably would have been like, oh, well, you know, what are Whichever they Whichever way the wind is blowing. Yeah, and, what are and there's they a lot of pressure to do that. When you get that kind of pressure, as I'm sure you do, 
how do you handle it when something is antithetical to your mission statement, but it might be coming from a respected source or somebody who has clout because they're investors in the business? I think we handle it two ways. One is from uh, we were never the hot thing when we were fundraising. So the people who are around the table now are all people that really believed in the two of us when we were starting um, and believed in the vision that we had. So they didn't invest in us because they thought that we would be, you know, fantastic at creating the most amount of video content. Um, They believed in us because we knew who our audience was and we had a very specific focus and we knew what we wanted to mean to them. Um, So I think that there's a respect there and I feel very lucky that at times the fundraising process, especially in the beginning, dragged out. Um, What it left us with is people that have an unshakable belief in the company. I think the second way is by having advisors who play devil's advocate. So our advisors are from people who are in different parts of the media industry or tech industry, and they do have different philosophies. And I think we really use them to push us and to say like, hey, here's you know what we've been thinking. And also there's two of us. And so we try to stay away from a groupthink mentality. And I think that that's where our advisors really come in. I also would add that we look at the advice of our advisors, or we look at, let's just say, market trends, market data, and like those are all data points. Um, I think for me, like what I always think about is no one's ever built the skin before. So we have the most experience building it thus far. Uh, and so at, at the end of the day, like I think it's just a good kind of reset for us to remember that, that, you know, there's no, there's no recipe book, recipe book about how to do this or an instruction manual. And if it was easy, everyone would do it. Uh, and so I think, you know, we use those data points, but I think we also, um, we have a true north about what our mission is. And I think that's also really easy to come back to. And how does the skim make money and where in the trajectory of the skim did that become? Because for so many companies, it's about subscribers and how many people are looking at your content. Where in the trajectory was it, okay, we've got we've got the eyeballs now. Now we need to monetize this. So, like literally week one, we had advertisers reaching out to us. We did not know how to have those conversations, nor did we have the bandwidth to have those conversations. So we said no. Unbeknownst really? to us, you said no. We said no. Did that hurt a little bit? I don't think we knew what we were doing. Okay, I don't think we. I don't think it registered what we were doing. What we did find out we were doing was actually um, creating market market scarcity. Uh, we were making ourselves hard to get, and people wanted to meet with us. So it was a very good thing that we did mm. that. We. When we raised our first round of funding, um, our first investors gave us the advice. They said, focus on growth. And it's it's a very Silicon Valley uh, piece of advice. It's probably from an episode of Silicon Valley. But they said, focus on growth. Don't think about the revenue yet. We focused on growth. We really quickly achieved scale um, in the millions of our, of our daily readers. And then um, we were able to think about how did we want to integrate brands into the experience that it felt – Native to reading the skim, it felt like it was a brand enhancer and that it was a value add to our audience. Um, So we started opening the door to working with brands a few years ago. um, But what we knew really early on, and even, you know, when you asked, like, if you looked at your early materials, what would be the same or what would change, 
we knew early on that we were not going to be a solely advertising-based company. We knew we were going to have diversified revenue. We knew subscription would be part of it. And we knew advertising would be a component of it. Um, and so we're, you know, really proud that we've, from day one, were able to diversify revenue. So today, yes, we have a great advertising business, but we have an incredible premium subscription business. Um, we have a great commerce affiliate business, and we also do content licensing. Um, and so that diversified revenue, I think, has been um, a huge differentiator for us, honestly, in the market. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting point coming from your background, seeing a business like NBC that really does run on that ad revenue. Was that part of what made you say we, we shouldn't do this all ad revenue or, you know, because a lot of companies that launched around the same time as you really spent almost everything on ad revenue. And they based a lot of their business around Facebook and being active on social media and then getting advertisers to get involved. I think it was a few different things that went into that. The first, um, and you brought up Facebook. Um, so I'll start there. I think that when you look at the types of content that did well on Facebook when they first, you know, when publishers really first started going there, it was breaking news, which we 100% knew we didn't want to do because we knew the resources that you need to do that well and do it responsibly. And we didn't feel like there was a void in the market there. Um, So we knew we weren't going to do that. So it was like, okay, if we're not going to create the mass amounts of content that are so timely that they're going to keep up there, then we're not going to try it. The other thing that did really well on Facebook was video. Um, And I think, honestly, that was just, we grew up as video producers and we know what goes into it to do it well. And we didn't see it as being a huge part of our audience's daily routine. So the idea when, you know, video started becoming a thing of of kind of doing this well-produced video and that everyone was going to be on their phones watching it, I think that obviously it's trending that way, but we weren't there yet. And as a startup, you have to make hard decisions about where you're going to focus. And that wasn't even a hard decision. It just didn't fit in with our philosophy. We looked at how we wake up every day. We look at what we really um, use and check every day. And it is our phone. But it's much more email, text message, calendars, and audio. And those are all of the distribution mechanisms that we've pretty much gone big in. So your co-founders and co-CEOs. A very important relationship. (laughs) Also, the fact that you're legitimate friends. How do you manage it when you have a really sincere disagreement about your shared baby? Um, You know, we get asked, like, all the time, like, even, like, by our friends, they're like, do you guys still get along? Like, you know, and we're like, this is just, you know, we're like, of course. Uh, I think that um, we... We've always been aligned around what success looks like for us personally and for the business. And we constantly do check-ins around that at different you know stages or phases of the company. I mean, when you raise money, um, especially venture money, which we've done now a few times, um, you are committing in a different way, a renewed commitment to the company's trajectory and the stakes around that. And so we've always had these like very, I think, healthy check-ins and conversations to make sure we're still on the same page. Um, I think we both have gone through a lot of ups and downs personally um, in the last few years. And I think um, we both feel that 
there is literally no way we could have done this without the other. And there is no skin without the both of us. And I think that um, we're very protective of that relationship. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, our family, like we're basically family. I mean, like our families know each other now. And like, uh, I think that that's, um, it's something really unique to us. And I, and I do think like the interesting thing is when people come to us for advice a lot, it's a lot of times for co-founder relationship. And I would say almost all the time, I'm like, I don't think you should work with this person. Or I'm like, that does not sound good. And what are the, what are the signs that you should work with someone and the signs you should not work with someone. I'll tell someone. you when you shouldn't work with somebody. Okay. Uh, I recently gave advice to someone who was telling – I asked the person. I said, do you 100 percent – 110% trust your co-founder? And they didn't answer. And they're like, I can't answer that. And I was like, well, that just told you everything. I think one thing – I don't know if you get this, but a warning signal for me is when you're leaving your job to start something together and you're not equal partners. Mm-hmm. And from the get-go, when people say that, I'm like, well, you're already evaluating each other differently. There's also like small things. I yeah. mean, we'll go to conferences or events where we know that there's a co-founder, yeah. co-founder duo behind the company. And we'll see a name tag and it says founder. And I'm like, that's a signal that you, you are putting yourself for whatever reason in front of the other person. That is not a partnership. And I mean, we're crazy about it. Like we will not do public appearances without the other. Um, we will not do a radio show like this, a podcast <laughs> show like this without the other. Um, and, you know, it's certainly important to divide and conquer. Um, so definitely a, a proponent of that. But um, I think we are very protective. Like those words mean something. Like co-founder means something. Um, Co-CEO does mean something. And I think we've always been really clear with our board and our investors about what our red lines are around that. So important. I've seen so many of those relationships that didn't work out because there wasn't I think clarity. Honestly, like at the end of the day, running a business is so hard and tiring. The thing that like should not be the stressful part is your co-founder. If that's yeah. what's giving you the drama and the headaches and the sleepless nights, like something's off. Yep. And and I ultimately not just your co-founder, but your employees. That's always going to be I think number 1 when it comes to building a company. How do you guys differentiate between the people who should be working for the scam and those who should not? Well, I think it's an answer we've learned a lot about. And it's probably been different things at different times. I think one big change is when we started, we were looking for all-around athletes. That's the term you would ask people. Like, how are you an all-around athlete? And um, – for the you non-athletes, right? Yes. <laughs> they could do, how could they do the sit and reach on their gym test? Yes, like I can't do any of this. Um, so tell me about how you are. And we actually have a lot of athletes, so I guess it worked. Um, but we um, we were looking for people that could be good at one thing, but most of all could pitch in and would pick up an area of the business that they had no exposure to and just try it. Yeah. Um, And I think that that was the way we hired for a really long time. I think now we are at the size where we're looking for people that are more specialists, um, which is a great thing because the company is at the point where we need someone that's really great at this specific type of marketing or really great at, um, you know, this specific type of data analysis. Um, But it also gives some of our earlier team members people to learn from. Um, And I think that that's been something that we really aspire to 
built in our culture, which is um, professional development opportunities. And I think that's something that is really hard for a startup to be able to do in the beginning. Um, so that's something that we're focused on now. Uh, I was just going to say, I um, I think for me, like, I'm like, yes to all of those things, but I'm always looking for the people that um, will roll up their sleeves. Yeah. And we'll get it. We'll, we'll do it. Like, we'll get in it. And I think there have been so many times that there's warning signals of someone who we want to take a job here for very much the wrong reason. And um, we are very hands-on CEOs, for better or worse. And we're learning how to scale ourselves in that. But um, we are, we're hiring a team that, like, you need to be able to roll up your sleeves. You need to, be able to sit on the floor with your laptop and, like, get done when, like, when stuff is I, intense. I think that's also – we've made changes in our hiring process that I think have been helpful there. So when we look at executive or senior roles, we'd like to have um, – employees who are um, more entry level also be in that process. And it's really telling how someone will treat the two of us, but then when we're not in the room and they're in a meeting with people that are at a junior level, how they treat them. And one of our core values is, you know, if you have an if you have a great idea, it doesn't matter who it's from. And it certainly doesn't matter what level the person that it's from. So really living that day to day is what we look for. What's the toughest lesson you've had to learn along the way? Hiring. Yeah. I, I think it's always hiring and it's always the same lesson, which is listen to your gut every time. And it is every time I don't listen to it, it turns out I was right. <laughs> okay. And the worst advice you received along the way? So we have we have good answers for this. Yeah, we, 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 we thought about it. Because we know yeah. you always ask them. Yes. Um, one piece of advice that we got very, very early on when we were thinking about how we fund the business was to get rich boyfriends. No. Yes. Yep. True story. Wait, who told you this? I'm you. not going to tell you, but it was, was – it somebody who was going to finance the business? No. No. Yeah. They were looking to invest. Oh, my gosh. You're right. Yes. Yes. They and were. And what did you say? I, I think we didn't respond. Yeah. I don't think we knew how to respond. And it was also very serious. It, this was not like a, you know, a joke. Mine uh, was um, we were – I think one of the things people don't realize is like when you are a CEO, like you report into a board and your salary has to be determined by the board. And we had never had to negotiate for ourselves before. Um, and that was really hard to to fight for yourself, and especially because there's two of us and it's a different conversation. Um, and we were really struggling with how to do it. And we went to someone that we um, really looked up to and they were very well-intentioned. But what they said was – well, I usually say my wife needs a house. So you should say I need a house or my significant other needs a house. And I was like, I don't understand. I don't need a house. And he, he said, but you need a house. And I was like, no, no, I, I live in an apartment. I don't need a house. And I really like did not understand. And he goes, you're not understanding what I'm saying. The board will not want you to have an unhappy like home life. So you need a house. Your significant other is very unhappy if they don't have a house. And so literally – we said, I need to move apartments. And it, that was not why any, like we got our you know compensation or had that um, discussion. But I think that it was a really, really old school jarring thing to hear that we would only be deserving of compensation increase if we could kind of use a significant other as a as a tool in which to get it and that that would be the only reason. But it's also what's shocking to me about that advice. It, it's antithetical, actually. I mean, even just on its face. But you guys did. You said you needed to move apartments and that worked? Um, no, we didn't say it like that. No. Okay. No, no, because no. 
in, no, in my experience, if you look at every negotiating 101, every everything around negotiating a salary, the thing you don't do is tell an employer, and I get it, this is a little different, but you don't tell an employer, um, I need this raise for myself personally. You talk about the value that you yourself bring to the table, and that's why you our worth. That was so that was the approach that we took, which was here's market data around what we've done yes. and what we are worth. Um, I think that the advice that we were given, which is why I say it's the worst advice, came from a very um old school way of thinking um that we've all read too much about in recent years. Uh and it was, you know, very much the like happy wife, happy life. <laughs> and it, it, it was uh, it was jarring. I, I just remember being on the phone and like just putting the phone down. I mean, like, what? Well, I don't want a house, but I'm so confused. <laughs> well, it's just shocking to even think. I mean, yeah. yes, I, I I don't think I'm ignorant or naive to what may have happened or still does happen. But that's like shocking to hear. I would never expect that to work in a negotiation. To your point, though, about um, the wealthy significant others, you did rack up a lot of credit card debt early on uh we did and i did get married but that was not i'm at not all suggesting i'm not behind co- my decision i'm not collecting the t- or connecting yeah. the two things but but it is it is something that i think for a lot of listeners right now that whole idea of taking on debt i mean for the most part that is not something that anybody would or should be or is advocating for especially yeah. credit card debt well, because we, it's so high interest we also don't advocate for that. Um, But I do think for us, it was the way that we could start the business and could afford to quit our jobs. And, you know, it took us a long time to pay that off. And it's not something that we feel was the best decision. But I don't think we would have been able to start the business had we not done that. All right. So 10 years from today, what is the skim? A very big company. A very big company and the most important brand for this generation of female millennials. Thank you so much to both of you. This is a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with the Skims Danielle Weisberg and Carly Zakin. Remember, you can head on over to Skimmed from the Couch for the crossover episode where they interview me. And finally, a shout out to our team here that helps make this happen each week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn, and the ABC radio team, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelp, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.